0: Hello and welcome to Eternal Youth, I'm Nicholas Barrett. This podcast is based on the following quote. To understand a man, look at the world when he was 20. It's a quote often attributed to Napoleon, but unsurprisingly, there's no solid evidence that Napoleon ever said it. The quote belongs to the English historian G.M. Young, and what G.M. Young was trying to tell his audience in London in 1943 was that to understand his subject, Edmund Burke, It was important to know what was happening in the world when he was 20 years old and he said he did this for every historical figure he worked on and in this podcast i want to test that approach but this podcast is also kind of a scam you see there are a few ways of looking at history there are certainly more than two ways of looking at history but there are two very popular ways of looking at history the first is known as the great man theory of history It's the idea that exceptional individuals rise up in the public imagination, become powerful, and change the world. Perhaps they invent something, perhaps they start a war, or a revolution. And the world is never quite the same again, because that person existed. Napoleon is actually a very good example of this. The second is environmental, and it says that circumstances make certain events practically inevitable be they inventions, wars or revolutions, a certain convergence of the right conditions at the right time and in the right place allow for an invention to work and to take off. Or perhaps a combination of factors make a state ungovernable or a dynasty dysfunctional. And so these factors make a revolution unavoidable. And not only do these factors make revolution unavoidable, they also incubated a different kind of human being that is a culture and a generation of people who could entertain thoughts that people before them could not and that you or i would probably never entertain now the first idea is how many of us imagine the past and the present because it's romantic it's less complicated and lends more weight to the decisions we make ourselves because we're individuals too the second is probably how we ought to think about it because if you think about it in the second way that is the environmental way You're less susceptible to anger, and you're less susceptible to veneration. So, this podcast is a Trojan horse, and right now, there's something resembling a wooden Frederick Nietzsche at your door. Unless you turn this off now, it's coming in. So, I think I chose Nietzsche for this first episode because I feel like, well, I made a long list of people, and he was the one furthest back in history. And to get on my list, you had to be somebody who I thought affected the public imagination today. And I couldn't go much further back than Nietzsche because my knowledge of history just gets a bit fuzzy after that. So I'm going to start with Nietzsche and I'm probably going to come forward in time, but maybe one day I'll go back. So let's start in 1864 when a 20-year-old Friedrich Nietzsche went to university in Bonn. At the time, there were Germans and they spoke German, but there was no Germany. Nietzsche had been born in the province of Saxony, in the Kingdom of Prussia. And Nietzsche went to school at a time when the Prussian education system was being reformed by Wilhelm von Humboldt. Like Nietzsche, Humboldt was a philosopher and a philologist. He was friends with Goethe, and he wanted to model Prussian society on ancient Greece. The rector of Nietzsche's boarding school described it as Athens in the morning and Sparta in the afternoon. The boys were encouraged to speak to each other in Latin and Greek at all times. It was probably the most rigorous school day in Europe. I'm going to give you a flavor of it. So, 4 a.m. wake up. 5:25 a.m. morning prayers, warm milk, bread rolls. 6 a.m. lessons. 7 to 8 a.m. study. 8 to 10 a.m. lessons. Noon, collect table napkins and march into the refectory. Roll call, Latin grace before and after midday meal, followed by 40 minutes of free time. 1:45 to 3:50 p.m. lesson. 3:50 p.m bread roll and butter, bacon drippings or plum jam. 4 to 5 p.m., senior boys test junior boys on Greek dictation or mathematical problems. 5 to 7 p.m., study. 7 p.m., march into a factory for supper. 7.30 to 8.30 p.m., play in the garden. 8.30 p.m., evening prayers. 9 p.m., bedtime. So, in 1864, this semi-monastic life ends, and Nietzsche moves 300 miles across the country to Bonn, where he studies theology. It seems like a natural subject for him. His dad, who died early on in Nietzsche's childhood, had been a Lutheran pastor, and Nietzsche had been expected to follow in his footsteps. But his interests are starting to diverge from those of his parents. One of the first signs of this movement away from Christianity came a couple of years earlier, when he asked for a book called The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Faberbach for his 17th birthday. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. There's going to be a bit of difficult German pronunciation in this podcast. And this is quite a radical book at the time. It's a critique of Christianity written by an atheist. What's remarkable about that is that it comes out a full 18 years before Charles Darwin publishes The Origin of Species. It's also cited as an influence for Marx and Engels. Now, what Faber-Park does in the essence of Christianity is to try and turn the Bible upside down and argue that man created God in his own image. He says that a lot of the characteristics we associate with God, like love, power, righteousness, and immortality, are things that humans aspire to. In the Old Testament, we have a proud, traditionalist, strident and vengeful God. In the Old Testament, God commands humans not to kill, but also murders pretty much everybody with the Great Flood. Meanwhile, in the New Testament, we see a kinder God who, via Jesus, asks us to love thy neighbour. He says, he who is without sin should cast the first stone and that we should give everything we can to the poor. The meek, Jesus said, will inherit the earth. In modern times, we can almost see this as a God who speaks for the right and the left of the political spectrum. And faber would say that human desire is very complicated and contradictory, and that whoever wrote the Bible and spread the Bible, which triumphed in Europe over lots of other ancient texts, that those people had found reflections of their own contradictory feelings about power, the law, justice, kindness, and revenge in those old stories. The other prominent critique of Christianity, which also found its way into the hands of the adolescent Nietzsche, was called The Life of Jesus Christ Critically Examined. It was written by David Frederick Strauss. Like the essence of Christianity, it predates Darwin, and this book does exactly what it sets out to do. It argues the miracles attributed to Jesus were probably embellishments, rumours, which were exaggerated by word of mouth. He went through the Bible and drew attention to inconsistencies in the text, Strauss, who was not an atheist, thought that the miracles of the Bible could be better understood as symbolic and mythological narratives rather than literal historical events. He saw Christianity itself as a projection of human ideals and aspirations onto a divine figure. It was an attempt to apply a Hegelian dialectical approach to religion. Many years later, Nietzsche would write an essay praising Strauss for his work, but criticising him for not going further. For being too cautious, Strauss, Nietzsche thought had opened an important door, but failed to walk through it all the way. These are the books that Nietzsche has under his arm when he arrives to study theology, and he's just not interested in his course. He's more preoccupied by getting a dueling scar. At the time, all the students want one. And so, while he's walking in the countryside with a friend, Nietzsche politely asks for a duel. And in this duel, if we can call it a duel, really... He acquires a tiny scar between his nostrils, only to have it hidden by what was probably the most iconic moustache in the history of philosophy. Now, I'm something of a method podcaster, so I grew a moustache to write this podcast, and I challenged my flatmate to a duel, but he just rolled his eyes and walked away. It's a bit tricky for us because we only have one sword in the flat, we would have had to take turns or something. But anyway, there is one story in particular that finds Nietzsche's time in Bonn. Well, in that area of Germany, And the story here is told by his friend Paul Disson, whose name I'm probably mispronouncing, and it's told after Nietzsche's death. This is from his memoir. I am slightly reluctant to tell here a story which deserves to be rescued from the past, for what it reveals about Nietzsche's way of thinking. One day in February 1865, he had gone by himself to Cologne, he had been shown the sights by a guide and finally asked the latter to take him to a restaurant. The guide, however, led him to a house of ill repute. Suddenly, Nietzsche told me the next day, I saw myself surrounded by half a dozen apparitions in tinsel who were looking at me expectantly. I stood for a while, speechless. Then I went over intrinsically to the piano as the only being there with a the soul and struck a few chords. That ended my paralysis and I made my escape. The reason this is worth mentioning is that for decades people speculated that Nietzsche contracted syphilis that evening and that syphilis was the reason for his mental decline later in life. But Disson, who was very close to Nietzsche, is sure that he never touched a woman, in his words. And the scientific consensus seems to have shifted away from the idea that Nietzsche's breakdown was caused by syphilis. Nobody, it seems, is completely sure. But I'm something of a method podcaster, so actually that's not so important in the context of... 1864, 1865. I started this podcast by talking about the great man theory of history and Nietzsche believed in it and one of, if not the most prominent contemporary figure for Nietzsche would have been Otto von Bismarck. Now to understand where Bismarck came from we need to go back a couple of years to 1862 when the king of Prussia wanted to rebuild the country's army. His problem was the Prussian parliament didn't want to raise the necessary taxes to pay for it. This was a liberal parliament set up after the revolutionary unrest of 1848 when people in many parts of Europe had rebelled against autocratic governance. The king appointed Bismarck as prime minister, and Bismarck's job was to break through the deadlock, even if it meant collecting those taxes for the army unconstitutionally. And in 1864, Bismarck uses his newly rebuilt army to start a war with Denmark. Lord Palmerston, who was the British prime minister, famously said of this war that only three people have ever really understood it. Prince Albert, who is dead, a German professor who has gone mad, and I, who have forgotten all about it. But it was essentially a territorial dispute which arose after Denmark tried to exert more control over two semi-autonomous regions, which were under the Danish crown but had big German-speaking populations. It was a war that Prussia had already fought and lost a few years earlier, but this time Prussia had Bismarck and his new army, and Denmark was quickly defeated thanks to Prussia's superior numbers and superior guns, That Prussian parliament had been created to appease liberal democrats after 1848. Bismarck wasn't a fan. Germany, he said, does not look to Prussia's liberalism, but to its power. It is not through speeches and majority decisions that the great questions of our time are decided, but through iron and blood. And Nietzsche was paying attention. Over the course of Nietzsche's life, Bismarck would become arguably the most powerful man in Europe and would unify Germany and create the German Empire. And he would unify Germany with the help of guns and cannons. People today still argue about whether the unification of Germany was a merger or a hostile Prussian takeover. And while this is going on, Nietzsche, like many others, is becoming an admirer of Bismarck, though he wouldn't put anything in writing for another few years. But back in Bonn, Nietzsche is quickly falling out of love with theology. He spent his two terms there racking up debt, Bonn was very expensive, and he was spending too much time drinking beer and sleeping in. And to get a sense of his attitude towards theology we can read a letter he sent to his sister. Every true faith is indeed infallible. It performs what the believing person hopes to find in it, but it does not offer the least support for the establishing of an objective truth. Here, the ways of men divide. If you want peace of mind and happiness, then have faith. If you want to be a disciple of truth, then search. What Nietzsche finds is philology, which is the history and structure of languages. In human all too human, He calls philology the art of accurate reading. It wasn't uncommon for students to swap universities, and so he leaves Bonn and travels across the country to study philology in Leipzig, which is one of the oldest universities in Europe. And the difference is night and day. Literally, it's night and day. In Leipzig, he's up at 5am to attend lectures every day, and he turns his local cafe into what his biographer, Sue Prodo, calls a philological stock exchange. I love that idea. Now not long after his arrival in Leipzig a professor encourages him to start a philological society where students write papers and read each other papers. At the society's second meeting Nietzsche produces a paper on a sixth century Greek poet and when the professor sees his paper he gushes over it and he urges Nietzsche to write a book. People are starting to recognize him as a prospect. Soon he starts giving his own talks at the university which become popular. Crucially when he goes home for Easter for the first time in his life he doesn't take communion and like many people today, he has to make an agreement with his mother that they won't discuss religion together anymore. But Nietzsche's life, as far as he's concerned, is about to change forever again. In October 1865, he impulsively buys a copy of The World as Will and Representation by Arthur Schopenhauer, and he absolutely loves this book. Years later, in Untimely Meditations, he describes himself as one of those readers of Schopenhauer who, when they have read one page of him, know for certain they will go on to read all the pages and will pay heed to every word he has ever said. He says that this book has been written specifically for him. So what is this book? Let's get into it. The world as will and representation is a reply to Immanuel Kant. And Schopenhauer starts by developing Kant's ideas of the way we, humans, experience reality. So to try and understand Schopenhauer, we need to understand Kant first and the difference between the subject and the object. So you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. But Kant says that our perception of cars, our perception of houses, and any other object is mediated and limited by our senses. We, the subject, take in data which is always limited regarding every other object, then impose our own ideas about time, space, and causality back onto that object, so we can put them into a context that we can understand. And crucially, according to Kant, that means we can't understand what the world is like without our filters of time and space layered over them. So you are a subject, while the large automobile and the beautiful house are objects. And Kant goes as far as to say that there is no object without the subject, because, in his words, if we take away the thinking subject, the whole material world must vanish. As this world is nothing but the phenomenal appearance in the sensibility of our own subject. Without me, Kant argues, this is not just my beautiful house, because it only exists as far as I, as a subject, can comprehend it. Therefore, we can never truly understand the world around us. We can understand cars and houses in as far as what you can perceive through the limitations of your senses. You know those senses are limited, so according to Kant, You can't claim to fully understand cars, houses, or any object. We just don't know what we can't sense about them. Now Schopenhauer loves this. He just can't get enough. He agrees with Kant that there can be no object without the subject. But he argues that we can still understand it. Why? Because we have our own bodies. Our bodies are something that we can feel and control. They're subjects, but they're also objects. This is where the title of the book comes from. We use our body as a tool to pursue our desires, that's the will, and our body is also an object to be perceived by others, that's the representation. We can understand our bodies because we live in them. And if we can understand our own bodies, then maybe we can understand other objects too. So how should we understand our bodies? Well, Schopenhauer is one of the first Western philosophers influenced by Buddhism. He thinks desires make us miserable. The will in every living thing the will to eat, the will to survive, the will to have sex, those are always going to be our priorities. And remember, he too is writing this long before the world sees anything from Darwin. For Schopenhauer, the will is an invisible, irrational and universal force, driving the actions of everyone and everything. If we can understand the will, we can understand ourselves. And if we can understand ourselves, then maybe we can understand other objects too. But Schopenhauer is deeply pessimistic about the will. He writes about the food chain, And he has this passage about sea turtles who lay their eggs on a beach because they have to they have no choice and when they get onto this beach wild dogs attack them they kind of like flip them over and eat them alive and as they slowly die the dogs are then attacked by tigers Um, life he says is suffering it's all just one circle of suffering he writes from whence did Dante take the material from this hell but from our actual world those ideas you might understand about unconscious desire, about how we want things without knowing that we want them, how if we make mistakes like forgetting someone's name or being late for something, how that might reveal our real priorities in life and that person whose name we forgot doesn't fit into our desire for sex and preservation and power. You probably think those are Freud's ideas but they're Schopenhauer's and Freud also read Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer's trying to tell us however present the will is, even if we don't think it's the force that motivates us. Now we have to put a health warning on this. Schopenhauer's father died when he was very young. He drowned in a canal, and because he was known to suffer from anxiety and depression, some people, including Schopenhauer himself, believed it was suicide. Schopenhauer blamed his mother for his father's death, and they stopped talking. And Schopenhauer was probably celibate. When he tells his readers that love is just a trick on behalf of the will compelling us to breed, he might not be the best witness. Schopenhauer then tells us that bad things can and will happen to good people because the universe is ruled by chance and indifference. Life is unfair, life is suffering, and there's only one escape, one way for humans to come anywhere close to true objectivity, and that's art. Creating and enjoying art can give us a temporary respite from the suffering of everyday life. Through art, and music in particular, we can exist between the boundary separating the object from the subject. That is, the boundary separating us from the world around us. And when we look at art or listen to music, we can, for a few brief moments, detach from the universal will and forget about our suffering. Nietzsche is still synonymous with the idea that God is dead, and the idea that there is a will to power within all of us. He's a man who wrote that Christianity was a story the weak told themselves to avenge the strong and a man who tried to warn us that without Christianity we would find other ways to seek the power it once gave us. Thank you for listening. I'm Nicholas Bauer, and if you enjoyed this podcast I will make more of them. See you yeah. next time.